Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Make sure you are ready for some warmth because today we are talking about fire and prairie and how it all interacts to affect plant reproduction. This topic is not as simple and straightforward as it's made out to be in a lot of popular outlets, and all of the nuance is thanks to people like Dr. Jared Beck. Dr. Beck has been studying, among other things, a species of echinacea and how fire at different sizes of habitat affect its reproductive outputs. I don't want to steal any of his thunder. He is truly passionate about this work, and listening to him talk about it is absolutely fascinating. But before we get to that, I just want to say conversations like this are not possible unless you support shows like In Defense of Plants. There are a lot of great ways to do that, but one of the best is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. For a tiny financial contribution each month, you can get a bunch of great kickbacks, but most importantly, you can help keep this show up and running. I could not be doing it without my patrons. So once again, that is patreon.com slash plants. Consider supporting it today. But that is entirely enough out of me. I don't want to keep you from this conversation any longer. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Jared Beck. I hope you enjoy. Great. Dr. Jared Beck, welcome to the podcast. I am really excited to pick your brain today, but for those that aren't familiar with your work, let's start off with an introduction. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Jared Beck. I'm a postdoctoral research scientist at the Chicago Botanic Garden. And for the past three or four years, I've been investigating how fire influences plant reproduction and population dynamics in the fragmented prairies of western Minnesota. Dang, that's some heavy work, really important work, but uh, where did it all begin? I mean, were you always interested in fire and prairie, or were you just kind of a nature kid growing up that evolved? Yeah, I, I grew up in southern Wisconsin, and I was fortunate to be a part of a family that valued spending time outside. So I spent a lot of time as a kid outside, camping, hiking, but probably more importantly, and just exploring randomly in uh, the woodlots and fields near my home. Um, and I actually started life, I was not that interested in plants growing up. <laughs> it's okay, safe space. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> I was interested in birds. And I think from the time I was about five years old, I told everyone I wanted to be an ornithologist. Right on. Um, <laughs> so I still love birds, but I think at, in college, um, I got pretty interested in plants. I was lucky in that I um, my work-study job as a freshman in college was working outside in the college's natural lands. There's nice. like a 900-acre arboretum with restored prairies and um, woodlands. And I don't think it was objectively the best campus job, <laughs> but I loved it. <laughs> you know? For me, it was it was really cathartic to go out there and cut and haul buckthorn all day. Wow. And um, towards the end of my first term, I got to participate in a prescribed burn Ooh. on campus. And I was hooked immediately. <laughs> um, you know, as a kid growing up with Smokey Bear and being taught, you know, got to be careful of fire. You know, wildfires have these adverse consequences. Um, being there, learning about fire, and 
um, being actually able to participate in a burn was, um, sorry, but it kind of ignited this passion. (laughs) I feel like you got it. I feel like there should be a disclaimer here that there's going to be a string of bad puns. Um, most are intentional, but some are not. My friend, you are um, in good company. Do not worry. <laughs> so, you know, being on a prescribed burn is objectively a uncomfortable experience. Yeah. You know, you're strapped with a 45-pound pack that has water in it. Uh, every single one of those packs leaks, so there's water leaking down your back. <laughs> Um, so your back is cold, but if you're facing a fire, you know, your front is warm and there's smoke and it's sweaty and it's just objectively not an enjoyable, like a physically enjoyable experience. And yet I distinctly remember turning to my boss and saying, wait, you get paid to do this. <laughs> and so I, I was, you know, the fire was an easy one for me. I was yeah. hooked immediately. Um, and I was fortunate to learn with people who were um, really knew what they were doing. And I felt like I got excellent training and a background in not only the practice of implementing burns, but also some of the ecology behind it. Plants, it was a little bit slower. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, in doing this job and being out there all day, um, it was really impossible not to notice the plants that were around you. And my boss was a great botanist. And I feel like, you know, I tried not to be annoying, but I may have been. But I was constantly asking, you know, like, well, what's this? What's this? Probably the same species over and over again. (laughs) um, Well, why is it growing there? Why doesn't it grow over there? Um, And I think for me, it was just kind of this. uh, It wasn't intentional, but it really trained me to learn how to make observations and ask questions in a way that I think really naturally led to um, being a scientist. And that was not my intention from the start. I kind of wanted to go into the land management side of things, Hmm. but the puzzle solving aspect of science and the asking questions is just kind of got me hooked. Nice. So I guess that takes me to the point of learning to love plants. (laughs) Um, And after college, I, um, I got a job working with Stuart Wagenius and the Echinacea Project, uh, which is the group that I am working with today. And I was an intern, um, kind of lab manager, lab manager, intern type mm. position. And um, Stuart has this incredible uh, research project that he's been doing for the past almost 30 years now started Whoa. in 1995 Dang. Um, oh that hurts to hear that's 30 years ago <laughs> <laughs> i hear you oh wow um, anyway <laughs> it's uh yeah when the, when the the new students come in and i say yeah i i guess i kind of started with the project almost 10 years ago i kind of scratch my head and go oh my gosh Oof. time go yeah right but i i got to combine my interests in fire and plants um with uh, Stuart, and I can talk a little bit more about that project later, but um, went to grad school, actually did nothing to do with prairies or fire. Oh, wow. Um, but I pretended to kind of moonlight as a prairie, as a fire <laughs> ecologist, you know, nice. just in the background. Um, I was actually studying understory forest herbs. Oh, wow. Um, right on. I think 
you also did Indeed. that kind of work as yeah. well. Love that stuff. Um, and towards the end of graduate school, I reconnected with Stuart and asked, um, you know, hey, would you be interested in writing a grant um, to fund some of the research that I've been working on most recently? Um, and so that is kind of the uh, path around the Midwest that I've taken nice. to get to where I am now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's always that like, I never could have predicted this moment that I, I just love because your story is one that's shared by many. You just kind of gain momentum and you kind of gain momentum in a certain direction that, you know, if you get into ecology, you realize it's all related, right? I mean, I can't tell you how many people that I talk to that are like, well, I really love birds, but then I realized I have to protect bird habitat to get birds and then plants happen. You know, it's, it is all related. And, you know, in defense of plants wouldn't be plants, uh, you know, focused if it didn't say, hey, it all comes back to plants at the end of the day. It's true. I mean, that is kind of what I've arrived at. Plants are the start and the end of all kinds of cool questions. Certainly. And I'm sure, you know, whether you're on a restored prairie or a remnant prairie, you're still seeing cool birds, right? Like it's it's all connected. You know, I had to learn in college. I I did spend a summer uh, working as a a research, uh, a researcher during the summer, and we were doing plant community surveys and restored prairies. And I distinctly remember having to learn how to kind of fork my senses. So my ears were devoted to birds. <laughs> All the other senses were devoted to plants. Nice. And uh, that has served me well over the past 10 years or so. Yeah, right. Because I mean, the, the, the litmus test of how well is this restoration or how healthy is this habitat is like what organisms are using it, right? And so that brings us to this whole dynamic of prairie and fire. And we've had people on the past talking about it in one form or another. So, you know, the audience understands prairie and fire kind of go hand in hand. But to what extent, like, it seems on surface level that like, oh, duh, just burn them. But there's so much more to it than that. And that's where a lot of your research comes into play is trying to understand the dynamics of how different fire can react and and the effects downstream from that. Um, So let's unpack that a little bit like how did you start getting into this idea that like not all you know it's not one size fits all with fire yeah and I I think the starting point is this project that I started um, immediately after college and I had no idea what I was getting into but Hmm. my boss knew I was interested in fire I was interested in plants and um, he had been collecting this big long-term data set starting in 1996 focused on Echinacea angustifolia, the mm. narrow-leaf purple coneflower. And I, I think it's important to recognize that there's nothing that's like uniquely special about echinacea. Sure. And I don't mean that as a slight whatsoever. Sure. <laughs> I mean that it is a common species that you will find all over the place, west of the Mississippi. Um, and you'll find it in roadsides. You'll find it in really nice prairies. It's a great plant. Hmm. But it's not rare. It's not, you know, immediately threatened with extinction. Right. It's common. It's typical. It shares a lot of characteristics with other prairie species. Hmm. And that was kind of intentional. So Stuart wanted to dig deeper into some of the mechanisms that are influencing prairie plants. And there's this, this inevitable trade-off between you can either study more species or you can go in depth with one species or a handful of species. Right. Right. And 
his thought was, well, science has made a lot of progress with this kind of model system approach. Think about like mice or Drosophila, right? Yeah. So why don't we see how far we can take that with like a model system for thinking about plants and fragmented habitats Mm. and plant insect interactions. And, you know, Stuart will tell you that he had no idea what he was getting into. (laughs) And, you know, he had no idea where this project was going to lead. But I think I just have incredible admiration for his patience and perseverance and continuing to collect data for, you know, continuously since 1996 on individual plants. And, you know, it's a total team effort. Um, We have lots of collaborators. We have a great team made of high school students, undergraduate students, recent college graduates, high school teachers, graduate students, postdocs, other faculty. all make this kind of work possible but it's really that perseverance and the continuous study that allows us to have some of these really unique and valuable insights Mm. into the life history and demography of a species i'll kind of hop off my soapbox for a second there (laughs) all right (laughs) and (laughs) so when i came in as a research intern Stuart said yeah i got this project um there's this absolutely gorgeous nature conservancy preserve uh, near where we're working in western minnesota it's called staffinson prairie it's about 100 acres um it's been regularly burned since the i think 80s oh wow and um just this amazing closest thing on the landscape that we have to what a prairie probably looked like you know 200 years ago wow and The Nature Conservancy regularly burns it. They burn one half at a time. So every four years, they'll burn like the East Management Unit every four years and then the West Management Unit every four years and they stagger it. So it's, you know, pretty typical for the way that a lot of prairies are managed. And Stuart had been collecting data since 1996 on nearly 800 individual plants. Dang. um, Some in the West Unit, some in the East Unit. And my job was to help kind of piece together this, this long-term data set. Wow. 21 years of data on nearly 800 individuals and try to understand how fire is influencing reproduction. And I'll tell you, it does not take 21 years of data collection <laughs> to know how echinacea responds to fire. It's really <laughs> obvious. Um, you burn. The next summer, they flower like crazy. Oh, wow. They love okay. it. <laughs> um, done. Go home. <laughs> done. Go home, right? Yeah. Um, but the question we were really interested in digging in was, that's kind of the first step of reproduction. Right. 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 And just because a plant is producing more flowers doesn't necessarily mean that it's producing more seeds. Done. There are a lot of things that can happen in between. Wow. Um, so first, the plant needs to get pollinated. Hmm. and um that requires in the case of echinacea it requires usually a bee moving pollen between one plant and another plant and echinacea requires pollen from an unrelated individual to successfully produce a seed Hmm. so you know it's not a guarantee right that you're going to get pollen um and then other things can happen later down the line like you know you can get eaten by an insect seed predator or 
um, goldfinch comes along and mm-hmm. you know nibbles off the fruits. And so that was, I think, the real um, insight that that work had was, you know, we weren't just quantifying how many flowers the plant was producing. We were also quantifying um, pollination and seed production. Wow. And I don't know that I've ever been a part of a research project where the results were as clear as they were, right? (laughs) Clear as day. Dang. After fire, plants go crazy. They flower like crazy. Um, There's much higher reproductive effort after Mm -hmm. fire. And when there's much higher reproductive effort, you're synchronizing flowering within a population, um, which leads to potential mates being closer. So they're closer to you. And we also went out and recorded like daily, when does a plant start flowering? When does it stop flowering? Wow. And there's more overlap in the timing of flowering. So basically after fire, you have higher reproductive effort, which synchronizes um, reproduction and increases mating opportunities, which translates to better pollination and more seed production. Wow. I love that. End of story, right? Yeah, yeah. Go again, go home. Double PhD. You win. <laughs> so, I mean, that's kind of where we left it. Yeah. Um, it was this cool story kind of wrap. It, it took a few years to to get it out the door and out there, but um, it was a nice, tidy story. Right. And here's where I feel obligated to share, like, one of my favorite quotes in ecology. Please, yes. And... Um, so I did my graduate work at UW-Madison, and there's this um, amazing plant ecologist uh, who was active there um, in the 1940s and 50s, John Curtis, mm. who wrote this book called The Vegetation of Wisconsin, which is kind of like, it was published in 1959, and to this day, it remains kind of like the uh, the gold standard, the go-to text for ecologists in the upper midwest yeah, right yeah and um in the in the kind of the prologue to the book um curtis quotes a french ecologist and i'm just paraphrasing here but it's the most important decision an ecologist makes is where to stop the car <laughs> oh that's great And I love it because it's so true. So much of what we learn as scientists and especially ecologists comes from the places that we study. Mm -hmm. And in the case of Staffinson, Staffinson is this incredible, relatively large by today's standards, prairie, high quality, regularly burned. Um, what we're learning from Staffinson probably reasonably approximates like historically how this dynamic between fire and plant reproduction played out in prairies. But the reality on the landscape today is so, so different. Um, <laughs> yeah. Staffinson is weird. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's big, it's regularly burned, and most of the prairies that we have on the landscape today are small. They're isolated, um, and they don't have much of a history of fire. Yeah. And the question that was eating away at me was, is what we're learning at Staffinson really applicable to most of the prairies that are on the landscape? Hmm. And, 
you know, there's kind of a humorous story that I, I always joke, got this project started. And it was back in 2014 or 15. Stuart and I are standing in the middle of this prairie that hasn't seen fire in 60 or 70 years. Um, to get to this remnant, you got to walk. It's almost half a mile through a cornfield, but you're never walking in a straight line. So right, it's you know, right. <laughs> quite a bit longer and this corn's hitting you in the face and we get out there and you know, it's, it's pretty degraded Yeah, and it's just the two of us and we're talking and, you know, trying to collect some data. And I remember asking Stuart, you know, just like, what do you think would happen if we burn this prairie? Dangerous. And, <laughs> you know, that kind of burning question simmered, <laughs> you know, in the back of my mind for years. Um, and eventually, you know, when I was finishing up my PhD and looking for a postdoc, we reconnected and I said, hey, you want to write a grant and do this? You, you want to burn? <laughs> <laughs> you want to burn? You know, yes. um, the answer is always yes. Uh, when conditions are safe. But uh, <laughs> so we, we kind of hatched up this project to um, piggyback on research that Stuart started when he was in graduate school yeah. in the 90s. And he set up what I would call this like natural experiment in habitat fragmentation. So for since 1996, um, the Echinacea Project has been monitoring um, echinacea reproduction and demography and depending on how you slice it 30 to 40 remnants across the landscape oh wow that's decent yeah and so some of them are big and beautiful like Staffinson. <laughs> most are not um <laughs> some are little slivers of roadside you know some are covered in poison ivy yeah um, and you know they've seen better days but it's a good representation of what's on the landscape Right. I was just going to say, probably more true to form for most remnant prairies across North America. Totally. Yeah. Um, and so our, our project involved, um, you know, our goal was to have a pretty representative sample and burn some big populations, but also burn some smaller populations and intermediate sized populations. Um, and do it experimentally in a way that allows us to really understand, um, you know, whether fire has really consistent effects across small fragmented populations and, you know, big relatively intact populations, which is something that's not usually done when we're studying fire. Yeah. Um, partly because burning is difficult. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, and partly because we're working in this really unique landscape where we have all of these options available to us. Mm -hmm. um, and so for the past two or three years, that's kind of been what we've been up to is we, um, we've conducted about 22 prescribed burns. Um, we've done most of them, um, but other groups have uh, like, we piggyback on some burns done by the Nature Conservancy and the Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, at some of the bigger sites and we have this really nice gradient and we burned some really comically small populations <laughs> with like three or four individual oh, plants geez. right yeah 
And then we've burned some populations like Staffinson, where we estimate, you know, there are probably 10 to 15,000 echinacea. Yeah. And last winter, it crunched the numbers and some really interesting patterns emerged. Um, when we're thinking about how fire can influence plant reproduction, I think it's helpful to kind of divide it into there's reproductive effort. Right. So basically, like how much, how many resources the plant's investing in reproduction in a given year. Yeah. Yeah. And then there are the outcomes, like how many seeds are actually netted from that mm -hmm. effort. And so on the effort side of things, across the full range of population sizes, um, fire had really consistent effects on reproductive effort. Okay. So no matter if you're in a tiny population or a big population, um, fire basically doubles the number of individual plants that are flowering. Okay. So it's like each, no matter the size, like the plants don't know what size habitat they're in. It's just that triggers there and they're like, oh, got to do it. Exactly. Okay. Um, and same thing goes for echinacea produces these like composite heads. They're yeah. composed of a bunch of little florets. And um, on average in a given year, they'll produce one head. Um, after we burn, that basically doubles. So on oh. average, they'll produce two. Cool. Sometimes it's a lot more. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but so fire has really consistent effects on reproductive effort. And yeah. I think the way you characterized it is spot on, right? Like the plants are going to respond to the direct effects of fire really consistently. Yeah. They don't know where they are. So what got really interesting was when we looked at pollination and seed production, pretty consistent with what we found at Staffinson in the big populations, you saw um, increases in pollination and seed production. So seed production basically doubles. Um, pollination, there's a pretty strong boost in the amount of pollen that plants are receiving and turning into embryos. What's really interesting is that once you get below about 20 individual plants, right? Okay. So this isn't like area, this is 20 individual potentially reproductive plants. Right there's basically no effect of fire on pollination and seed production. Oh, wow. It's much, much lower. And plants are just not getting pollinated. Even if they're doubling, you know, the number of heads they're producing, they're getting no net return on that investment. And in that like sweet spot between about 20 and 100 plants right in there, there's this huge um, jump hmm. uh, where fire has a huge impact. So actually, like if you're thinking about individuals, the biggest impact that fire has on individual reproduction is right around the like 40 to 60 plant range. Oh, wow. Population sizes. And what is kind of causing this weird <laughs> nonlinear pattern? <laughs> yeah. It's all about mating opportunities. Okay. Um, so in big populations, fire really consistently increases um, mating opportunities. So how close prospective mates are and whether they're flowering at the same time. But in small populations, there's just inherently a lot more stochasticity mm. and you're not getting an appreciable increase in mating opportunities. So this is, it's kind of thought provoking. Yeah, big um, time. And, you know, one thing that we've kind of 
I guess there are a couple of takeaways that I really try to impress upon people. And one is that, you know, a lot of the way that we think about fire and think about the way that fire is influencing plant populations and plant communities and prairies and a lot of other fire dependent systems, we really think about how fire is affecting the physical environment. So the way that fire, that plants respond to fire might depend on the intensity of the fire or the timing of the fire or how fire is influencing the environmental conditions. Yeah. And there's really good reason that that's been the focus, right? Right, right. Like <laughs> fire has very <laughs> conspicuous effects on the physical environment. Yeah. A lot um, of data supporting that, by the way, <laughs> for those that are still scared of it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I don't want to, you know, try to reinvent the wheel. Sure. Um, but I think what our results kind of highlight is there's this something that we haven't thought a lot about are kind of the indirect ways that fire might affect different vital rates in plants like reproduction and how that could be really dependent on the context. Yeah. And for me, it's, it's kind of a mixed bag of there's like a cautionary tale in here. And there's also reason for hope. Right. Um, on the cautionary side, you know, historically fire dependent systems occur across all over, all over the world, right? Yeah. <laughs> Including some of these incredible biodiversity hotspots. Um, and we know that returning fire to these systems is um, really important for conserving plant diversity yes. in these systems. I think the cautionary tale from our results is that our primary tool for preserving plant diversity might become less effective as populations shrink and habitats mm. become increasingly fragmented. Right. And prairies are pretty far along the curve, um, a lot of the fragmentation curve. Like, there's not a whole lot yeah. of prairie left to fragment. Right. Um, but there are other fire-dependent systems where fragmentation is ongoing. So places like, um, you know, tropical dry savanna in mm -hmm. South America, in Brazil. Increasing fragmentation. Um, South African finboss. Right. Increasing levels of fragmentation. And so... I think the cautionary tale is that in all of these systems, um, we need to be cognizant that there's some urgency in stepping up our efforts to return fire to these landscapes while fire is still effective. Right, right. <laughs> um, so that's kind of the cautionary, like, downer note of the research. Um, but for me, there's actually something that I think that is really motivating. And that's um, when you think about like what is still present on the landscape. And for me, you know, my, the system that I think about a lot is prairies is, you know, how many individuals do we need to burn in order to get some of these reproductive <laughs> benefits? Yeah. It's not, not, not a huge number, right. you know, like, 40 to 60 individuals occur in pretty small patches and it doesn't take, um, it doesn't take really highly trained organizations, you know, that have all the fanciest equipment like the nature conservancy, us fish and wildlife, um, natural resource department kind of organizations to safely and effectively burn 
some of these small remnants that we have on the landscape. Sure. I mean, I see volunteer groups doing it, you know? Exactly. And so I think the positive takeaway for me is that these volunteer groups, these small groups, like you yourself can make a huge difference for some of these smaller plant populations. Um, And, you know, for me, that's very motivating. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, anytime you can kind of draw a, a, a hopeful message out of the cautionary tale, especially in today's climate with habitats that we know are on the downward spiral, uh, just in sheer volume, um, you know, that's beneficial because I think more people want to take away action. They don't want to come away depressed. It's like, we, we know it's bad. Tell me what to do. And especially something practical at, at any level of, of citizen involvement. What can you do? And to me, going into areas that are starting to look at fire and go, well, maybe there's something here. If the voices that are saying, no, that's scary, don't do that, are louder, then you don't get to even have a chance. But if you get more people saying, no, this can be done well, this can be done right, this can be done, most importantly, safely, then suddenly, you know, things can look a little bit brighter. Yeah, I I completely agree with that message. Um, yeah. Yeah. What I love too is the way you approach this work. It's it's sort of a two part. Like you said, you have to think about it at the beginning and at the 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 aftermath. Is is effort versus outcome? And when you think about where we're at with so many species, is if it's a numbers game, we can do something about that. And that's where, like you said, it takes a village to get these data. It also takes a village to do something about it. You know, you are studying the effects of the fire. You might not be the person growing these plants or lobbying to get a burn in there. Um, But, you know, I know a ton of people that are collecting seeds locally, growing these plants that can be used then to maybe help that numbers game out a little bit. Yeah, I think it's a great point, Matt. Like there's, I I think it's really easily when we're thinking about conservation to get really um, discouraged and think that, you know, the big problems that we face require big solutions, right? Yeah. Big efforts, big solutions. And I think we overlook some of the really day-to-day tangible things that we can do and people are actively doing that that make a difference on the landscape. And that could be growing plants, volunteering with the local organization, just sharing your love of plants with your neighbors. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Get more of them on the landscape. And that's where it becomes like we don't need to let our entire yard go fallow but having a handful of extra plants bolsters that population makes that apparency better and when those reproductive moments are there there's more of them on the landscape to work with but i'm curious from your perspective as a science you seem to deal in this sort of difficult area for scientists especially in ecology of the nuances the it's not a one-size-fits-all strategy. And it's tough. It really is to be in the sciences because we're looking for generalizations. We want to have these big picture, broad brushstrokes. What's novel here? What's different? What can we say? And as much as they tell us not to, like context truly does matter. And so how do you kind of find that sweet spot of operating in this world of like, I need generalization, but at the same time, it depends. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think... Um if some people have worked with me were being honest with you, they would tell you that <laughs> sometimes I'm more interested in the noise than the pattern. <laughs> you are um, unique, sir. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think for me, those two things aren't 
you know, mutually exclusive. Right. Um, I, I think there has been, and going back to this, you know, quote about the most important decision an ecologist makes is where to stop the car, <laughs> is I think there's been a historical tendency to try to understand ecological processes in really high quality areas. Mm. Um, and to understand like how things played out historically. I, I think that research is, is great and has really good baseline for helping us understand like how these ecosystems work, how population dynamics change or vary over time. Um, but for me, like achieving greater generalization responsibly, right. Um, <laughs> means that we have to be really mindful of like what the inference space for our work is mm. when we're conducting a study at like Staffinson, what is our inference space? Is it every single prairie across the landscape? Is it large, relatively intact, frequently burned prairies? Um, and I think that's something that, you know, definitely is a challenge as an ecologist right now especially just with the pressures of funding and and um is you want uh, a quick story you want global impact mm -hmm. yeah right like my uh my lab mates in grad school and i would always joke about papers that you know the title always ends in like in the biosphere <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it's the world piece of <laughs> ecology right yeah. and um and and i think there is it's a challenge right now to incorporate a little bit more nuance. Yeah. Um, but I guess what I, the way I like to think about it is to think really carefully about like what the inference space for the, the research that we're doing in are do what the inference space for the research that we're doing is mm -hmm. and being curious and getting out there and doing the work to understand whether that inference space is, um, whether some of the things that we're learning in these large, high-quality places um, apply to some of the heterogeneity that exists across the landscape. Yeah. And, and to sort of emphasize your, your enjoyment of the noise, which admirable quality to have in a scientist <laughs> working in ecology, by the way. Um, you know, like you said, there's nothing special about this echinacea. It is a wonderful species. It is a just fascinating plant in and of itself. But does it set the standard for every plant in its habitat, across its range even, or in different sizes, right? And so that becomes this interesting idea that research like this then brings up is like, well, how does the next species react? How do grasses versus, you know, rhizomatous other forbs do? Like, the amount of questions that come out of just investigating this one species, I can see why then you'd go, oh, that is why you spend 30 years studying one species. And that's why the minutia of like just getting stuck in on it, it matters. Like, it might not be the most interesting thing to everyone, but it certainly brings up a lot of really interesting questions for whatever the heck you're interested in. Yeah. And, and I think that question of generality is one that... Um, I'm really trying to tackle. Yeah. It's it, it's a little bit, I don't want to say heretical, but kind of <laughs> oh, no. is, you know, I'm kind of, a, by nature, I'm skeptical. Sure. I'm not skeptical of people, but I'm just, I'm just a skeptic in science. And so, you know, us at the Echinacea Project, we often make the case that, you know, like Echinacea is a model system for studying ecology and evolution and fragmented habitats. 
And, you know, my knee-jerk reaction to that is like, is it really a model system? <laughs> you know, like, how do you test that? Right. Like, do we have data to support that, right? And, um, and as part of this research, we are kind of like trying to better understand, like, is what we're seeing in echinacea mirrored by other species? Mm. Um, and so there's um, a graduate student who did some previous work on Solidago speciosa and Laetris mm. aspera. Nice. A showy goldenrod and rough blazing star. Um, showy goldenrod's a little bit different. Doesn't respond to fire the same way. Hmm. Um, Laetris, totally the same story. In fact, <laughs> it might respond even more strongly than oh, I dang. fire. <laughs> Good to know. Um, and as part of the, the work that I've been doing the past three or four years, um, kind of the set of questions we're interested in with echinacea to understand like how this dynamic between fire and pollination and seed production plays out across the landscape. Um, there are a few other species that we're, that we're also working on. Oh, good. Um, so one is Laetris. Nice. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, checking out those data this winter and kind of understanding how that dynamic plays out. Um, but we think that one's probably pretty similar to echinacea. Sure. Another species is big blue stem. Oh, nice. Right. So talk about something that's totally different. Yeah. A wind pollinated warm season grass. Right. It's also common <laughs> across the landscape. Right. And, um, you know, the assumption for a lot of wind pollinated species is that their reproduction is not pollen limited. Uh, like, yeah. Pollen is blown in the wind. Right. Um, much to the chagrin of many listeners, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Right. And so, you know, we're, we're out there and we're going to test it and nice. see, you know, we've got, um, I've got three years of data on big blue stem reproductive effort and we're working on getting the reproductive outcomes piece nice. uh, squared away to understand like whether there's this similar dynamic. I mean, big blue stem, we know how fire influences reproductive yeah. effort. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's not, you know, we don't need to collect a whole bunch of data, but um, this is actually one where I think we're catching up to land managers on mm. because a lot of land managers I talk to, right, I don't bother collecting seed from any number of species unless I burn. Otherwise, I just have no viable seed. Oh, wow. Wow. And so that, in my mind, you know, kind of like flips the switch and says, ooh, this seems like it might be kind of similar yeah. to what we see in echinacea. Yeah. So that one will be really interesting. And then um, my side projects have been uh, <laughs> uh, collecting really similar data on green milkweed, Asclepias oh, viridiflora. Nice. Um, which I have been totally fascinated by for probably 10 years. Um, when I tried, when I first tried to collect seed from it at a hillside prairie like 10 years ago and came back and couldn't find the plants. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so that's one where I've um, been collecting a bunch of data and interested to see how that plays out. And then the final one is um, looking at fire effects on reproduction in wood lilies. Ooh. William Philadelphicum. Excellent species. Um, yes. It's uh, 
initially I didn't think I would have enough plants to work yeah, with. That's a little nerve wracking. <laughs> um, I was kind of like, I, I was trying to get a ballpark of how many lilies I could find in a, in the summer. And, you know, people are like, maybe like 40 or 50 in a good year. Hmm. I said, that doesn't seem like enough. Yeah. And, um, I, 708 lilies later. Ooh, oh, right. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, and I should, I should say that this project, it's not entirely clear whether, um, the causality is, uh, I'm trying to understand how fire is affecting lilies. Therefore, I spend a lot of time looking for lilies and looking at lilies. Right, right. Or whether I just want to hang out with lilies, so <laughs> I, I'm studying it. Yeah, it um, can be a little bit of both, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but I digress. It's it's kind of an effort that um, we've undertaken to try to get a better handle on how generalizable some yeah. of the inferences that um, we have, like, you just can't go into this much detail with every species. No, no. But so. I mean, that's what time and more scientists do, right? But <laughs> it's good to get that throughout this. If you're seeing patterns, you're doing this, you're familiar with the literature, you're familiar with what you can expect out of species X. How does species Y and Z with totally different habits, life histories, you know, again, it's, it's just fascinating. And that's what you do with a career, right? Is you find that niche, you carry yeah. the momentum and you just see where it takes you. And it's, it's great that you also get to kind of bring up that point of like, am I doing this just because I like these plants? Well, hell yeah. Why not? Right. I mean, (laughs) that's one of the great things coming out of doing science is that like you can kind of choose your own adventure given funding. (laughs) Totally. I I call my evenings spent looking for lilies, lily palooza, and I try to recruit coworkers. Oh, shucks. Sometimes works. Yeah. (laughs) Well, just show them a picture. Always carry a picture and be like, you want to go look for this? Oh yeah. My phone from, you know, mid June to mid July is just orange. Nice. All the photos. It's so. a good problem to have. Not a bad problem at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's this wonderful combination of long term ecological data, which sadly still is kind of on the rare side of things. We're getting better with it, but natural history. And like you said, this idea of scope of inference changing. And we have to come to terms with the fact that, like, this idea of pristine wilderness is flawed to begin with. But it isn't the example that most of us have to operate on and is going to continue to be less and less comparable. And so it's just so comforting to see a group of folks and scientists, I'm, you're not alone, right? Just tackling yeah. these ideas across scales because you never know how it's going to change. And and truly what you're finding just as a numbers game, it says so much for plant conservation. Why small spaces, small space conservation especially matters. Remnant prairies matter getting more plants back onto the landscape is an important part of this. Cause I'm, I'm sure this isn't going to be the last density dependent sort of reproductive boom you're going to find in the plant world. Right. So the amount of inference that you can take just in terms of like, here's some generalistic rules, like you said, to apply to land managers, people in their own yards or whatever it is, this is applicable knowledge and really important stuff moving forward into a future rot with more habitat loss, fragmentation, and, and, you know, above all else, climate change. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think we have a few things that we're working on right now to try to, you know, even take this beyond reproduction and, you know, really understand um, 
you know, these plants live a long time. (laughs) The amount of seeds they produce in any given year might not be that, might not matter that much Mm. for the dynamics of the population. On the flip side, if year after year after year, whether you burn or not, you're not producing seed, the plants live a long time, but they don't live forever. Yeah. And so kind of our next step is to really understand how this reproductive pattern translates into, you know, whether populations are growing or declining by factoring in how fire is influencing a few different life stages. Right. Man. Yeah. Is It's like, you know, pollination work isn't easy by itself because just because something's on a flower doesn't mean it's pollinating it. Just because plants flowering doesn't mean it's reproducing. Even if it's reproducing, does it work? You know, is it recruiting? And like, it just, I love the emphasis on like, you have to consider multiple aspects. It's not enough to go out and go, oh, this looks nice. We're good. Walk away. (laughs) (laughs) We try. (laughs) Yeah. Nice. And so with that in mind, if people want to learn more about this work, keep a finger on the pulse of everything you're doing as well as your colleagues, where do you recommend they go looking to find out more? Yeah, if folks are interested in learning more about the work that um, I've been doing, but also others on Team Echinacea, I really encourage folks to visit echinaceaproject.org. There are links there to all kinds of work that's been done, the work that my collaborators are doing, and um, yeah. Awesome. Well, I will save everyone the trouble of trying to remember that. I'll put up links in the show notes, but Dr. Beck... This is fantastic. It's really fascinating. You're, you're showing a lot of uh, wonderful interplay between nuance and generalizable rules, but doing important work that can help inform keeping these plants and maybe even getting more of them back on the landscape. So thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it. Oh, it was my pleasure, Matt. Thank you so much for having me on. Of course. And uh, keep us posted. I'm sure as things come in, uh, you'll have plenty of updates. You are welcome back anytime, my friend. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Cheers. All right. Incredible stuff. I thank Dr. Beck for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And it just goes to show you ecology is a messy science, but it is a fascinating science. And you're always going to uncover something new and interesting that can have massive implications for preserving biodiversity on this planet. As always, go check out the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast so you can find all of the relevant links for this discussion as well as every discussion I have on this show. While you're over there, consider supporting the show because it doesn't happen without support. There's a lot of great ways to do that. You can pick up some of our customizable merch. You can buy a copy of my book. You can get some stickers. Or as I mentioned at the beginning, you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. Speaking of patrons, I have a shout out to the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Kay, who is supporting the show at the producer credit level. So they are doing the maximum possible to keep Indefensive Plants coming out each and every week. Thank you, Kay. And of course, thank you to all my patrons. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. At the very least, make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.